We are going to be in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 33. If you'd like to find that in your Bibles and get ready, we'll be there in just a few moments. But first of all, let me just say, I hope that you are feeling better. I find myself saying that to a lot of people here lately with the flu bug going, I hope you're feeling better. Or I might say, I hope that you have a, hope that you have a healthy baby. I hope, I hope that you get an A in that class. I hope, I hope she likes me. I hope I get that raise. I really need it. I hope that peace comes to our world soon. You know, every day we use that word, don't we? That small word, hope. And it's tough to live or even make it through one day without hope. But what is hope? Well, based on some of those examples I just gave and the biblical text that we're going to explore, I'd like to define hope like this. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. Hope is a vision for better days. There's something up ahead, around the corner, in sight, and it's good. But that good future isn't isn't just some abstract thing because it reaches in and it transforms us in the present. So, for example, if I'm hoping for an A in my class, then that hope will, or at least it should, motivate me to study right now. If I'm hoping for that raise, Perhaps I'll work just a bit harder. If I want world peace, maybe I can start by not shouting at my own children. You know, as a kid, I remember the power of hope pretty well, especially around Christmas time, because I knew that my mom was going to buy me some new toys. I had a vision for better days with better toys. And that then changed my attitude and my actions, at least for a time. That vision also drove me to scour catalogs and magazines and make careful lists of the toys that I wanted. It would, even at times, drive me to hunt under my mom's bed in order to catch a small peek at the better days that were coming. You see, hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. Today, we're going to look at a promise, a promise for better days that's recorded in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And to help us in our journey, I want to just give you some background, a little bit of a reminder perhaps for some of you to introduce this prophet of hope, Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a real figure in history. Sometime right around the year 627 B.C., When uh, Jeremiah would have been perhaps like a junior in high school, God came to him. And he spoke to Jeremiah, this young man, and he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now imagine getting that message as a teenage boy. Talk about some pressure. Now we're going to fast forward 40 years. Jeremiah is a prophet, a spiritual leader for his community, the Israelite nation. 
But the nation is in crisis. The year is 587 B.C., and the king of Babylon and his troops have surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. They've set up a deadly siege that's lasted more than a year, leaving the people inside Jerusalem on the brink of starvation. Zedekiah is the king of Israel, and he still thinks that he can beat back the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he keeps fighting back. Meanwhile, Jeremiah tells the king, Zedekiah, it's over. Just give up and give in. The king of Babylon will come into the city and you will surrender. So you can trust God to do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. And by the way, Zedekiah chooses to do it the hard way. And it culminates with him having his eyes gouged out by his opponents. You can read this entire story in 2 Kings chapter 25. Now the rest of the spiritual leaders and the prophets were assuring the king that Jeremiah was a fraud. He was a crackpot. They kept telling the king exactly what he wanted to hear. You are the man, Zedekiah. Nobody can mess with our nation. We're Israel. We always win because God's on our side. On the other hand, Jeremiah kept warning the king that these false prophets were merely offering cheap and false hope. Listen to his words from Jeremiah 6. They dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. You see, Jeremiah's basic message was this. Look deeper, king, because this isn't a military thing. It's a spiritual thing. In other words, the people of God have rejected the covenant of God. They've been committing spiritual adultery for far too long. King Zedekiah didn't like that message. And so he branded Jeremiah an unpatriotic menace to national security and had him arrested and thrown into prison. So in the midst of these grim historical uh, circumstances, as Jeremiah sits in a, a squalid prison cell, he's misunderstood, persecuted, hunted down, he's labeled, he's derided, during that time that he will proclaim some of the most powerful words of hope that are found in the entire scriptures. Chapters 30 through 33 of the book of Jeremiah are often called the book of consolation or the book of hope. Hope, hope according to the Bible is a vision for better days. The days are coming, declares the Lord. We see that statement again and again. The days are coming. All throughout the Old Testament, there are are hints and there are pictures and there are clues that say the same thing. Better days are coming. And those clues and those pictures are so powerful that they should take our breath away. But one specific message of hope is found in the text that I want to share with you today. And it's in chapter 33 of Jeremiah. Chapter 33, beginning in verse 14. I want you to listen to these words. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. Wow. Let's talk about this great hope. This great hope that God has for his people. For you see, hope is about a promise. It's about a promise. For the followers of Jesus, like us, hope always depends on the reliability of the one who makes the promises. Hope is never based on wishful thinking. Oh, hope it'll be okay. It's never based on positive feelings. Just think stronger and better and things will be better. No. Hope is never even based on how much faith we have. Hope is based on God who is really there. A God who has left good and sufficient reasons for us to know and to trust him. You see, if this whole Jesus Christ thing isn't reliable and trustworthy, then it's not worth our hope. Now this view of hope counters a, a, a misconception in our culture that goes kind of something like this. Religion and spirituality are based on feelings and myths, while science is based purely on reason and rationality. Now, for those who ascribe to this way of thinking, the, wor- the world is then divided neatly and cleanly into two categories of people. Reasonable, rational people who actually think through issues and come to the right conclusions, including the conclusion that faith is crazy. And then irrational, dumb people who don't think through the issues and therefore mistakenly conclude that there must be a God. Which, by the way, leads to just further disaster. But you see, in the Bible, hope in God is never pulled out of thin air. It is always based on a particular history with God. A history that gives us glimpses of God's character, that provides reasons why we should trust God, why we should place our hope in God. Hope is based on reason. It's not irrational. Hope is always about a promise. And as followers of Christ, we must have a firm conviction about this promise, the hope of our calling. On December 17th of 1927, off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, a a U.S. Coast Guard cutter accidentally rammed a U.S. Navy submarine that had just come to the surface. The submarine sank before any of those on board could escape. The entire crew was trapped. The ships rushed to the scene of the disaster, but there was nothing any of them could do. They were forced to watch and to wait. Divers were sent down to evaluate the tragic situation. One man put his helmeted ear against the vessel and listened for any sounds What he heard was a tapping in in Morse code. 
Because he knew Morse code, he could decipher the message. The message was this. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? And folks, all around us, all around us, people are asking this same question. Circumstances can become dark tunnels of despair. Health problems, financial calamities, struggles in our relationships, unexpected tragedies, uncertainties about life after death, all of these and more cause people to cry out in their heart, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Some have concluded that there indeed is no hope in this world. They've given up. Life has become nothing more than a dreary burden to be carried out day after day. Some even seek the ultimate escape in in suicide. Why? Because they can see no hope. The eyes of their hearts have no understanding. But you see, in Christ Jesus, we have the hope of his calling. There, There truly is no hope apart from Christ. You see, Jeremiah knew this hope. He believed the words of our text in verse 13 when God spoke to him and reminded him, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made. Jeremiah believed that. And therefore, he had great hope. Hope is about a promise to hold on to. It's not about circumstances or events. It is about a promise from God. But there's more. Not only is hope a promise, but hope is about a person. Hope is about a person. The vision for a better future isn't based on our wishful thinking or even our faith in that future, but instead the promises all point to a specific person. Hope is not wrapped up in a season or a program or in a new job or a better spouse or a better house. Hope is wrapped up in a person. The biblical word for this person is Messiah. In verse 15 of our text, this person is called a righteous branch who will sprout from David's line. Wow, what does that mean? Well, first of all, throughout the Old Testament, the greatest king was King David. Now, he was a flawed and an imperfect man, but he was also a a warrior for justice and truth, and he was a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest king. And toward the end of David's life and throughout the rest of the Old Testament story, God kept promising. And he said, I will raise up a king like David but much better than David. And he will rule my people. He will bless the whole earth. And so in verse 16 of our text, Jesus is called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Now in the Bible, righteousness is a relational term. In other words, a righteous person is someone who lives totally right with God and with others. Now, unfortunately, the Bible also says that none of us are righteous. Now, we might get it part, you know, right part of the time, but that, that doesn't help. You're either righteous or you're not. None of us 
get it completely right. But this branch, this promised one, this Messiah will be called the Lord our righteousness. In other words, he will get it right all the time. He will be the only fully righteous human being who has ever lived. And this leads right into the heart of the gospel. The New Testament declares that when Jesus, the Lord our righteousness, died on the cross, he took upon himself our unrighteousness. And in a marvelous exchange, we received his righteousness. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He wrote it this way. He said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is simply astounding good news of freedom for anyone who will receive it. Hope is about a promise. Hope is, is about a person. Now, all of that can, can sound academic and safe until we get to the last part of our definition of hope. Hope changes us in the present. Hope changes us in the present. Once you start down the path of hope, there's no turning back. Now, let's be, let's be honest. Sometimes it feels safer not to hope, right? Sometimes we dismiss hope. When we don't hope, then we don't have to worry about being disappointed. And there's some seeming security in that. But you see, in reality, hopelessness closes the human heart. But once you start hoping, you become vulnerable. Once you start hoping, your heart starts to burst with longing. Because now, now you have that hope. Hope will turn your life upside down. I promise you that. I want to give you an example from my own life. I grew up the first nine years of my life without a father. My dad died when I was an infant. I was raised by a single mom. And when I was six years old, my mom met and then married a man that she had met at a church. That was the beginning of some real hope for me. You know, a real family, a dad like other kids had, Somebody that could teach me how to throw a baseball. But that hope didn't last very long. You see, it wasn't long before that hope was destroyed. That man was an abusive man. He was abusive towards his, his wife, my mother. He was abusive towards me. He was alcoholic. He was extremely deceptive. He was an upstanding citizen in the community, but he was a tyrant and evil to those people who knew him well. And so as a result, the hope I had as a little boy faded away quickly. When I was eight years old, 
my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And another slow decline began. As she got sicker, any remaining hope began to fade further away. There, were, there was chemo and radiation and at times some small glimpses of hope. But then that was all dashed when just before my ninth birthday, my mom passed away. My hope was gone. And it was replaced by fear. Fear. Fear is what so many people live on today when they don't have hope. You know, for years I had hoped for a quote-unquote normal family, but now there was no hope. And it appeared to me that I would be raised by this violent man with evil motives. On the day of my mother's funeral, I tried to put on a brave face like so many people told me to do. One after another, well-meaning adults, friends, relatives, patted me on my shoulder or on my head, shook their heads in pity as they looked at me. During the uh, reception following the funeral services, people were talking and reminiscing. I quietly slipped away. I went back into the darkened church sanctuary. I went up to the, the front of the, the church, and there was a, a grand piano there. And I crawled under that piano, and somehow for a few moments, I felt some peace and, and safety in that dark place as I just kind of hid there. And at nine years old, trying to contemplate my, my future. Um, my mind, nine-year-old mind is going, and I'm considering my options. You know, am I going to run away? Where could I go? Who could help me? Where could I turn? Was there anybody I could trust? I, I didn't have any hope. I sat there for a long time, just thinking and crying and wondering and I was kind of then startled out of my thoughts when I heard the voices of two men. They had stepped into the back of the church sanctuary. They were having a, a conversation. And I, I recognized their voices. One was that wicked man that my mother had married. The other was a, a relative, a man with whose family I had stayed for a part of the time when my mom was hospitalized. They were arguing about me. They had no clue that I was in the room. I listened as this relative told that evil man that there was no way that he could keep me. That my relative would not allow it. He said, if you make any attempt to ever see Rob again, I will stop you. Furthermore, Rob is going to come and live with my family now, with my wife and with my children. He's going to be my son. My heart was, you know, pounding out of my chest. Um, could it be? Could I, could I risk allowing hope into my life? What, what do you think hope does to a nine-year-old boy? Hope is pretty good. Hope can set your heart pounding with wild enthusiasm. Hope can open you up to more joy and delight and adventure. 
than you ever thought you could have. But hope also opens your heart to the ache. The ache of waiting. The ache of longing. But true hope, true hope eventually leads to fulfillment. I went home that day with my new family. I never saw that evil man again. In fact, many years later, I learned that he died in prison. The Bible promises, in Romans chapter 5, hope does not disappoint. So I want you to understand how hope can change you. If you have truly opened your heart to Jesus, he will give you a vision for better days. And actually, for the follower of Jesus, those better days have already come, at least in part. The better days promised in the Old Testament to Jeremiah are available to us right now. We can call on the name of the Lord and receive and enter into the promise of better days. That is the good news of the gospel. And that power is available today. It's not just for some distant future in eternity. God's preferred future for you has already begun if you are in Christ. You can already taste it today. In chapter 10 of John, Jesus is speaking and he says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly abundantly. But I want to warn you, once you start to experience the abundance of life with Jesus, there's no going back. You have to live it fully, deeply, passionately. Because you see, Jesus will upend your life. He will inject a massive dose of hope in your heart. And you can't go back to normal anymore. You know, Jeremiah couldn't just live a comfortable life anymore. Life as he knew it was over. He couldn't go along with the crowd that was cheering Zedekiah and offering cheap and shallow hope. God had given him a picture of a new future, a new hope. And even if it meant going to prison, Jeremiah wasn't going to look back. You see, hope changes your life because once you experience hope, you can't go back to life as you knew it. When God said, better days are coming, when he says that, and when we really believe it, it will change us. And then we will start to align our lives with the hope that we have. You understand what that means? To align our lives with the hope that we have. This is the hope, the future. What are we doing to come into alignment with it? It's not that God's hope comes into alignment with our past. It's that our past aligns with his hope and future. Hope is about a promise. Hope is about a person. Hope changes us in the present. And then finally, hope brings risk. And we need to know that too. Hope brings risk. Hope provides us with a great vision of God's future. But there's some risk involved. 
hope sometimes causes us to risk, which is exactly what Jeremiah did in chapter 32. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read it for yourself, but I'm just going to give you a quick summary. 587 B.C., the Babylonian army is hammering away at at Jerusalem. Jeremiah knows that soon that army is going to break through the walls, they're going to conquer the city, and haul most of the people away to exile. He knows that. The situation looks utterly hopeless. One day, Jeremiah is sitting in his prison cell, and his cousin comes to visit him. And he offers to sell Jeremiah a vacant lot of land in the suburbs of Jerusalem. Now this is the worst time to buy property. Could we say the the bottom has fallen out of the real estate market, right? The city is under siege. It's about to fall to the wicked Babylonian army and everyone's going to get deported. But you see, Jeremiah lives by the promises of God. And again, this is not just wishful thinking. It's not just merely a a good feeling on Jeremiah's part. For Jeremiah, it's all based on God's track record of creation and history and redemption. And so to Jeremiah, the decision makes sense. And so he says, yes, I will buy that land. You see, he's hoping to come back to live in that land as God has promised. God had given a promise of better days. God has already told Jeremiah the captivity would eventually end and the people would return to the land. And so, what does Jeremiah do? He puts his faith into practice. Folks, if we have hope, if we hold on to God's promises of better day, if we are truly trusting that Jesus is the righteous one, it has to work itself into our life. We've got to take some risks. We've got to step out in faith. We have got to align our practices with God's preferred future. The risks might be small, or they might be big. But we must put our hope into practice. We must take those risks, because we have the promise of better days to come. Because we know the person, the righteous one. Because hope is already changing us, that makes the risk well, well worth it. A man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. He asked one of the boys in the dugout what the score was. And the boy responded, 18 to nothing, and we're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, said the little boy. We haven't even got up to bat yet. Isn't that great? Folks, it's our turn to step up to bat. It's our turn to take a swing, to take a risk. It's our turn to quit stuffing our pain deep down inside. It's it's our turn to quit living with the ache of an incomplete world. It's our turn to stop looking for comfort and answers and security in money or in the government or in people. 
we must stop living like the people of Jeremiah's day with their manufactured hope and their false sense of security because that kind of thinking is doomed. Instead, we are called to turn to the author, the perfecter of our faith and our hope, the Lord our righteousness.